collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Rita Fierro, and you are here for another episode of Collective Power. And I'm really excited this morning because I have a dear friend with us who's also like an overall badass and person of like really, really deep heart and brilliant mind. Katie Boone, good morning. Good morning. So I know Katie for some walks of life for a few years now. It's just really good to have you on our show this morning. And Katie's tuning in from Minnesota, which means it's like 7 a.m. your time. And I know you've been kind of connected and bushy-tailed and ready to go since six. So thank you for that. Since the topic for this month has been the fractals of healing, I've been starting each guest from week to week with the question, tell us like a little bit of a story about yourself so that listeners can really get a little bit of a grip of who you are and love you half as much as I do, maybe. And also understand, like offer us an anecdote or a story that also gives us insight into why healing is important to you. So Katie Boone, I live in Mankato, Minnesota, and I like to introduce myself as somebody who was born in a river gorge, but grew up in a river valley. I'm really intimately connected to the land. My family goes about four generations back on this land. And so what's interesting for me around healing and my own personal healing is a lot of uh, reconciling my family history and connection to this place. For those of you that aren't familiar with Mankato, Minnesota, we are the site of the largest mass execution in U.S. history. Um, in December of 1862, there were 38 Dakota uh, men that were hung in our downtown. And in that summer, there was a whole Dakota Sioux uprising. And so for me, it's been a, an interesting journey of recognizing that some of my own healing process is reconciling those pieces within myself and working in community and working in systems uh, to enable healing to show up so that we can move forward in a way that supports the well-being of the whole. So could you tell us a little bit like something about yourself that would have us kind of understand what got you on this journey of healing or like something that's happened to you that you looked at differently from the early on in your healing process to kind of where you are now? I think my first experience in being a part of a collective healing process, I was in ninth grade and we were working on a, a project in Appalachian Mountains and trying to rebuild a summer camp, one of the community sites uh, that the Appalachia community utilized a lot ended up burning down in the night. And that experience was my first kind of crack and opening into recognizing there's something about the way that human beings are in connection to nature and place that invite us to explore this on a deeper level as far as healing goes. To make it more tangible, 
I graduated high school six months pregnant as a teen mom. And a lot of the journey throughout uh, living in poverty, living in Section 8 housing, on every kind of form of public assistance there was, it was a very big worldview shift and being this like punk rocker teenager (laughs) with a lot of attitude that was barely ever in class to recognizing like I have a responsibility to a life that I want to be able to try and create a better world for. And so that worldview shift was a pretty profound shift for me. And I think it probably, there's a lot of little seeds along the way that sparked the journey, but that one was a pretty big catalyst. So what's your kind of definition of healing? And then like the topic for today is system healing. And that could almost be considered an oxymoron, right? Because most people think about systems as oppressive and we've only like most of our experiences with systems are oppressive and just like the system generally beats you down doesn't build you up and so kind of what's your definition of healing and what's your definition of system healing or how do you Mm. think about it yes it's a great question I think in a lot of different metaphors and stories and I try to make it as tangible as I can for people that just want the real tangible tell me what you think kind of stuff so I see systems healing as a a way that it can connect back to itself. There's something about really being able to look at a lot of systems right now are creating the disparities that we're seeing. They're creating more trauma and pain. They're creating more barriers and challenges, and they're not creating the world that we know is possible. And we don't tap into the potential of who individuals and families are by continuing to perpetuate these challenges and barriers. And so what I see in systems healing is that it's a way for the system to begin to align to itself and to begin to move towards what could be. And ultimately, it looks like a lot of shifting, a lot of shifting in stories, a lot of shifting in practices, a lot of shifting in awareness um, and people recognizing their role and taking on that responsibility and then really beginning to move towards more life-giving generative forms of health and well-being as a whole. And so where you see it in nature connects me back to the story about the Appalachia project I was working on as a kid. I'm sitting on the steps to this building and just taking in this like sorrow and sadness and grief and loss that families and individuals are showing up and recognizing that this like sacred site is gone and the loss of their memories and the stories of the place. It felt like a loss for them at that time. And in between my feet was this little letter. It was like kind of teasing me in the wind and I picked it up and it was all charred. But there was this little paragraph that talked about the Yellowstone National Forest Fire and how sometimes we look at forest fires as destruction, devastation, Mm. loss. um, Everything's plastic, right? And the natural ecosystem of the forest actually needs fire. (laughs) And so what the letter was sharing was that like pine cones that are in the trees, they release their seeds through the fire. And then this ash from the old growth actually becomes this like really fertile soil for the new growth. And so when you think about healing, I always think about like, how are we like pine cones? Like how is our pain and trauma cracking our seeds open? And how are we planting those seeds into the old stories and the old practices and the old ways that we thought it was to really grow us into a way that could be? And I see that in systems as well. I love that. I'm so glad to be a pine cone at the same time you're a pine cone, Katie. And I love the example you made of forest fires, because I know in systems theory and systems thinking, we talk a lot about making analogies with the natural world. And what comes to me when I heard your analogy about fires is that sometimes when I talk about system healing or I talk about 
being able to shift all our systems so that healing and love are at the center, it conjures up for people the idea of this utopia where no one's hurt anymore. And the way I think about it is not the utopia where people aren't hurt anymore, but what I see, the vision that I'm holding, is that it's possible for all our systems to align so that we're fostering a world where people get to learn from their experiences instead of being chastised for having those experiences. I think I did this on another show as well, but I make the analogy between like AA or NA, like in Alcoholics Anonymous or Alcoholists Anonymous or other kinds of AA groups, there's an assumption that at some point you may relapse. And the question is not if you relapse, but the question is when, and there's a predictability about the relapse. So the group is ready to hold you through that journey as well. So there isn't stigma attached to the relapse, but to the rest of our systems, there is. Like, think about how you get treated if you're incarcerated the first time versus if you're incarcerated the third time. It's like the relapse is a double whammy. So connecting back to forest fires, I was thinking about forest fires being like you were offering the example of how forest fires are regenerative. And mm-hmm. I would say that would be the system that fosters the healing versus mm-hmm. absolutely destructive, which if we think about, you know, the fires in Australia or the fires that we've had in California that due to global warming have been sort of out of control, it's because there have been all these factors that are like compounding that are taking something that in and of itself is not negative but in the presence of all these other factors, then it's kind of blowing out of control in a place where like the positive kind of flips because now there's just so many other factors that are aggravating it. And so it's actually breaking the natural rhythm instead of reinforcing it. I like what you said about like being well held and thinking about like, what does that look like? What does that feel like? I have a poem I'd like to share. Is that So this is a poem that was written just a couple of weeks ago after a conversation I had with a Dakota elder. And after this conversation with him, I was feeling so grounded and held. And I was sitting with a friend and I had asked, like, what does it feel like for you to be well held? And it led to this, like, super amazing conversation. And I was like, okay, I got to go write this down. So this is what came out. What's it feel like to be well held in a space of ease and bearing witness, sharing and listening, learning and deepening? What is the truth in our discovery of what matters, of shared feeling and emotion being heard and seen? What's it feel like to grow the roots of our golden threads of story and time that weave us together into this place? To lean in, relax, and know the inner glow of the space that keeps us feeling well held. Rooted in, your heart expands to the story unlocked through the history of land. What's it feel like to be well held? Come sit by the fire and watch the burning embers glow with warmth, compassion, curiosity and heart our stories really aren't that far apart thank you for that katie so i'm curious so i know the work you do you basically are a facilitator for lack of a better term but you hold space we've used that term a couple of times before but you basically create opportunities for people to be in conversations that most matter to them And the reason that's kind of different from how we usually think about facilitation is that it's not so much controlling as it is just like making sure the conversations that need to be had are had, as opposed to choosing what conversations need to be had. So it's a little bit less controlling, really, but also kind of a little freer in the format. And I know that you're a brilliant host. And so I'm curious, 
thinking about what you just shared, I think part of why system healing isn't easy for most people to conceive is that we have an experience of what I would call system abuse, which I'll share in a second, but we don't actually have an experience of system healing. So transitioning from your poem, could you give us an example of a work you've done where you've actually seen the system realign with those principles you were saying in your poem, right? Which is like warmth, curiosity, compassion, and heart. Our stories aren't that far apart with that, like at the core. Oh, this is great. So there's a story of this work in Minnesota. I was asked by an organization to come in. This was quite a few years ago. And they were a group of EMDR therapists. And for those of your listeners that don't know what EMDR therapy is, it's a a form of, is that it's a form of healing in a lot of therapists get certified in how to do it. And it's, it kind of cues up different visual frames of a traumatic experience. And I have had EMDR therapy and healing from my own stuff. And the experience I had in that, that was like, it kind of cools down those hot spots where trauma gets triggered and where you react and you're like kind of in a PTSD mode. And EMDR is this like almost cool, cool water waterfall effect that cools down those hot spots. It doesn't take the memory of it away. It doesn't like retrain your brain to think about it in it. What it does is cools it down enough so that it's still there, but all the heat and all the reaction and all the like trigger that happens around that memory melts away. And so this organization calls me, they're a group of therapists, they're doing EMDR therapy, and they're trying to reach out to veterans who are returning back from war. And they're trying to figure out how do we as therapists build relationships and networks where we can actually really get to these veterans. They're hard to find. They're hard to find. The families are struggling. Oftentimes the veterans that are returning back have PTSD due to their combat experience. And like it creates situations where it's harder to keep a job. It's harder to like sustain a family. It's harder to be able to be in a healthy relationship with your partner. Like all these compound factors happen when you are trauma and triggered and have these things, right? And so these therapists were trying to figure out how do we do this? And they added that the VA, the Veterans Administration, had absolutely nothing to do with EMDR therapy because it wasn't an evidence-based practice. So like the VA wasn't going to do anything with this. They weren't going to touch it with the 10-foot pole. But they had to do it anyways. And I was like, this is great. Let's do it. And so I began working with them to think about like, what would it take to create a journey of healing for veterans and their families? And we had a team of people work on, on really thinking about that question and sinking into it. And then thinking about what kind of conversation could that be for veterans, for therapists, for veteran administrators or veteran service officers that are like interested in this, but they know the system's not going to budge, but they want to be able to help in whatever ways they can. And we created a space and a time and a place and some questions and some conversations. And we opened it up with a, a World War II veteran telling his story that at 89, he lost his wife, who was the one person in his life that gave him that stability. And he had been living with PTSD his entire life without knowing it. When his wife died unexpectedly, also of old age, like he was completely broken. And his kids said, dad, you need to do something. We want you to be able to live out these last years that you have with us in a way that we can like love you and see you and you can be, be in the experience with us. And he was very hesitant all the stigma that comes with mental health and going to a therapist and da da da. And he ended up going and getting some EMDR therapy. And when he was sharing his story, he had said that it was the first time since he went to war that he remembered what love was. 
Mm. Like he remembered what it's like to be conscious and aware. And he was so grateful for the remaining years that he had to be with his kids in this way. And that's the story that opened up the conversation in Minnesota with these folks in this room that have the ability to step into new stories, new understanding, new roles, new responsibilities, and thinking about what this could mean for veterans, for families. And the group after that day began to work on a relationship-based network building process where it was through relationships that they began to connect to each other. They began to connect to other veterans. They began to connect to more families. And it was so effective and powerful that close to 18 months, two years later, I got a phone call back from the organization. And they had said, I don't know what happened here, but they've been working with this and they've been evolving with this. They've been getting in the news on this. And they got a phone call from the VA out in Washington, D.C. saying, whatever you're doing in Minnesota, we want you to build the prototype for the national model because the VA is ready to change and we're ready to incorporate EMDR therapy for our veterans. And a whole system thing evolved from there. So now to this day, like nationwide, veterans and their families are able to access the service through the VA, which is the system that started the whole conversation by saying they're never going to change. So in this case, while you could tell the story from so many different perspectives, right, because of the fractals, right? So you could look at it as a journey of personal healing, that this person in the face of the like death of his wife was still willing to share what was going on with him and his then you could look at it from the perspective of family healing, where his children are, I'm just looking at the fractals. So the children are seeing dad in this circumstance and are saying, dad, you need more. And so that's then the family that's healing because he's willing to listen to what his children have to say and shift the thinking. And then another dimension of the healing becomes the community healing because he actually has shared his story in a public space in a way that plants a seed, right? The fire, the pine cone plants a seed that then impacts a bunch of people because you hear a veteran who's literally saying, my wife was my stability and I lost her, I lost everything. And then it has us thinking differently about how we relate to veterans. And so then the community healing dimension kicks in. And then because you were in conversation with health providers and system providers and the VA office, then there was a system healing because people were able to witness the story and envision ways to have this person be well held, like reorient the system in a way that he could get what he needed. And then like the epitome of system healing, which is the phone call from D.C., like that's incredible, which is sort of like Minnesota became the seed for the bigger system, which is the political and national system. So you had this kind of system that is Minnesota that then it ends up seeding change in this bigger system that is D.C. So thank you so much for that example. I mean, I think the reason a lot of people don't see system healing is because we have so few examples of it. Both because probably few of us can see all those ripples, right? Most of life, those ripples happen, but we don't see them. And then we have so many frustrations with when those ripples don't happen, right? So we remember that. I'm wondering if there's anything you want to add about that. I think some of the key pieces of that work was story and relationship. So when I look at like, what are the conditions that help foster systems healing? Like, do we have spaces where people can be heard and held, where their stories can be honored and shared without the stigma of like, oh, you went to a therapist? And are those stories potent enough and powerful enough to be able to help us think differently about our role and who we are and how we've been a part of a system that we know isn't working well? And how do we shift our own actions and behaviors and really take these stories and take that responsibility on? 
to think about like, what's one thing I could try differently? What's one new relationship I could cultivate that might help me understand this better? And so it's stories and relationship. That's just like the tiny little piece of it, a massive, massive piece of the conditions for it. I know one of the things you say often is the quality of the results will be based on the quality of the relationships we we establish. The quality of the relationships directly impacts the quality of our results. Think about like all of your listeners right now are probably driving to work. Maybe they just dropped their kids off. Maybe they said goodbye to their partner. Maybe it wasn't a good morning. Maybe coffee spilled, the dog pooped on the floor. I don't know. You're maybe driving to work and thinking about like, uh, I got to deal with this person today. Or, uh, there's this leadership person that like really loves their power and I don't know how to freaking deal with it for another day. And you're stepping into a, a potential work environment where you don't have quality relationships because there maybe isn't space to take time to be listened to and listened with. Maybe there isn't time to be able to reflect on what are the results that we want to produce versus the results that we're getting. As you arrive into work today, I just encourage you to think about what are some of the relationships in your life right now that are no longer serving and or need tending. Say more about what you mean in like need tending. What does that mean? Like sometimes we avoid things that are really sticky and icky. Like it's easy to just like not talk to that person in the break room or it's easy to turn your back and be like, I'm not listening to this today. It's easy to tune out and check out and not tend to what's the conversation or the question that invites a new way of being where that person can fully show up as all of who they are and so can you. Like you lose curiosity when you're not tending to relationships that really matter. You kind of shut down in a place of judgment And so I think there's a discernment process because you can keep getting burned by people and get real chapped about it. And, or you can keep showing up and saying like, how am I going to create space for for that person to show up as all of who they are today? And how am I going to show up as all of who I am today? And what's possible in that space just for today? Just break it down. Tiny, tiny little steps. And I guess what I hear you saying is like, have whatever conversation you need to have so that you can start from a new place. Yes. Like just today, because what happens is we make up our minds based on some how someone treated us in the past, then we don't talk about it. And then like, from then on, we always listen from that place of like, that person is untrustworthy and is going to screw me over. And then that's what happens. Right. Surprise, surprise, because that's what we expect. So you just laid out this gorgeous perspective of systems healing, right, that you had with the VA's office. And I didn't actually know that story, so I, or you told me and I don't remember, uh, which is always possible. And I'm really thankful for you sharing it because there are always like other levels at which we get to know each other, even as long as we have, like uh, 10 years, I think. So I'm curious, what do you see the obstacles to systems healing being? Like, what are the barriers that show up in the everyday life? I know this isn't a very profound question because I think this is what we always think about, but just to like name it and then we can talk a little bit about barriers and then move a little bit forward in the healing conversation. It sounds like a really simple question. <laughs> it's contextual, right? Like it's related to what what's the space and place that we're talking about. I think in some work that I've completed and done and some of the work that I'm currently in, there's a lot of... I always use the analogy that like a fish doesn't know it's swimming in water. And when you think about that, like, okay, water is kind of the culture of the environment that we're in. That environment could be the neighborhood that you're you're raising your kids in. That environment could be the place that you're headed to work in. That environment could be the organization or system that you're a part of. And also culture is societal. Like, let's look at the big, 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 big picture, right? Like, so some of the barriers that get in the way is that we don't recognize that we're all swimming in water. And the condition of that water can sometimes be really stale and stagnant, which makes it hard to breathe. It makes it hard to like show up. 
It makes us feel sluggish, stressed out, anxious. And so I think some of the barriers are that people have a very strong resistance to doing their own work in healing. Like if it doesn't start with us, then it's not going to start anywhere. Because if you're trying to heal systems, your interior kind of landscape, like are you the charred landscape of a forest fire or are you a pine cone seed that is getting released into that new growth? Like, how do you see it? How do you heal it? How do you hold it for yourself? That then enables others to begin to do the same. And so I think the barrier is that we get in our own way. And then when we build a, an organization, the culture of being in the way is put into hierarchy and power and decision making. And that gets in the way sometimes if it's not well held. And it goes on and on from there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that kind of view at a micro and organizational level. Seeing that oftentimes what gets in the way, the barriers, again, are also fractal, right? So there's like the barriers within us. Like if I fear something, I'm very likely to just propagate is the experience, the expression I use, like propagate that in my organization, in my family, and so on and so forth. So I'm just going to offer an example of that, right? So if you have a leader of an organization that's scared of getting sued, they're going to conduct themselves in a way that's extremely tentative, extremely cautious, and they're going to create a culture where everyone around them is going to be scared of being sued. Because then the people who work for them will say, that's interesting. That person's really scared of being sued. That sounds like, like a person who would actually do that to somebody else. So now I have to check myself because if that's your fear, now I have to check myself because now I have that fear of you. And if that's happening in the upper echelons, then you can just imagine that it's going to happen in the middle managers. It's going to happen, right? So we tend to propagate within organizations the way we show up individually. And uh, I just want to add to that the framework of system abuse, which I use like in my book that isn't published yet. But you know, you and I have like talked about this a lot. So in the person-to-person -person world, we think about like abuse is when people are causing harm repeatedly without, without consideration for the other person's like feelings or experience or needs and so on and so forth. So when that's repeated over time, not when it's just like, you know, I spilled over your coffee because I bumped into you by mistake, right? That is an abuse. That may be unpleasant, but an abuse if it's just kind of like a one-time thing, unless it's severe harm, like physical harm, right, or domestic violence or things like that. Abuse typically is something that's repeated over time. And we've gotten very clear as a culture about what's person-to-person -person abuse. And one of the things that I'm really adamant about is that when a system is repeatedly hurting a human being or a group of human beings, that's system abuse. Like when that happens from a person, we're clear that it's abuse. But when it happens from a system, we use other words. So oppression is one of it. And so if we think in particular of the treatment of people of color in all of our institutions and systems, right, be it education, mental health, foster care, criminal justice, juvenile justice, like if you look at the data, people of color are disproportionately represented in any negative outcome across any system you can think of. So if we look at it just within the realm of education or within the realm of juvenile justice or within the realm of criminal justice, I call that single system abuse. And then if we look at the fact that it's actually happening across all systems, then I would call that like system with a big ass abuse. And so part of this like envisioning a system of healing is like literally saying those of us who are hurt, who see the big picture, 
who are exhausted, who are hopeless even, can actually come together and create that pine cone seed that allows things to start regenerating. Like that is actually possible. So I just kind of outlined system abuse and then went back to system healing. I wonder if there's anything else you want to add about kind of how the barriers both get in our way and can move us forward. I think barriers and opportunity, right? Like moving forward sounds like an opportunity. And I'm curious about like how our mindset and approach to what it is that we're working to try and heal towards impacts what happens. Like, are we looking at this through the lens of why would we even try? This is never going to change. Like think back to like the the story with the veterans, like the VA is never going to do this. (laughs) They're not going to touch EMDR with the 10 foot pole. The mindset had to shift towards relationship, towards potential, towards story, towards like some felt aspiration of what's possible and begin moving into practice together. And so if we're not willing to be changed in the work that we're creating change for, then we shouldn't be in the change work. If we're not willing to be impacted in the work, I don't know why you would be in change work. I would like you to say that again. I think it's really important. If you are working towards change and not willing to be changed yourself, you need to get out of the way. I love that you said that, and I don't think it's as black and white or cut and dry, but the reason I asked you to repeat it is because that's a way to hold ourselves accountable. So when we are in the work, and there are times that we do phenomenal jobs, and there are times that we do, eh, I had something recently that I did, and I was like, eh, that went a little, yeah. I have to be willing to look myself in the mirror and be accountable and sit with my partners and say, okay, how did I get in the way or get out of the way? And how do I get out of the way next time? And if I'm not open, what you're saying is that if I'm not open to, like if I'm not willing to be honest about how the way I'm showing up is either fostering or hindering the change, then I have no business doing change work if I don't want to look at myself. It's hard to speak, say anything after that, because as someone <laughs> like you who works for organizations, I'm just getting flooded by like so many people who I knew had, you know, these great lofty visions. But then when it came down to the moment of saying the tending to right, the having the conversation of like, how did this specific thing go? There's like a lot of pushback. I know how that you work really beautifully and profoundly, and I'm curious, could you share a little bit about how you work with organizations and systems? Could you share some like practices that you've developed that work particularly well in terms of bringing that system towards healing? I, I currently work as an innovation manager at the Future Services Institute, which is an organization that's housed at Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. It's I absolutely love what I do. I absolutely love the team that I'm working with and all of the sticky challenges that we're working on and with partners. And our work at Future Services Institute is about redesigning systems. And so what does that look like in tangible sense? We are working alongside state partners that are providing services in health and human services in a variety of different programs and areas. And we are working with community organizations And the team I'm a part of, we have a learning and evaluation component, a research component, a leadership development component, and an innovation component. And each of us contributes anything and everything we can to the work that we're doing because you almost have to have all of those key pieces in place to be able to help make sense and meaning of the changes along the way. And so some of the things in my practice that I do is 
I really try to be intentional in like keeping myself in check around how am I showing up in this work? Am I creating space for my colleagues to be all of who they are and how they show up in this work? Am I creating space for me to show up as all of who I am in this work? And how are we creating space for the partners and collaborators and stakeholders to show up as all of who they are? So when we do like design or engagement work, I'm really intentional in trying to get folks to get out of their heads and sink into their hearts because I think our heart has more creative energy and our mind gets in the way. And so when we get really grounded into that space of recognizing like what really matters um, and the impact that the work has and recognizing the responsibility of tending to relationships because knowing that these relationships are going to directly impact the results and that the results are going to directly impact the lives of individuals and families all across the state. It's a serious tending to. Yeah, that's a lot of relationships. So you said the heart has more creative energy. Say a little bit more about that. I think we can get lost in like cognitive frameworks and cognitive mindsets and like thinking of all the things that like we have to do and accomplish and the tasks and the projects and the timelines and the policies and the regulations, like that can be really, really, really overwhelming. And it matters, but not as much as what matters when it comes to the life, health and well-being of individuals and families and the systems and programs that we're, we're redesigning and serving. Mm-hmm. Like getting real about what matters requires us to work from a space of being grounded in our hearts. And that's the opposite than what academia trains us to do, doesn't it? Heart mind is just as intelligent as your academic mind, right? Like, and so it's like finding that delicate, symbiotic, holistic balance to all of it. And I'm not poo-pooing the academic mind. You absolutely are going to be successful in doing whatever you do with wicked good smarts and like wicked good research. And like all those things really matter because it legitimizes what we can learn by working with our hearts. I love that. And so before we kind of transition to what else you want us to know and how to follow you and things like that. So I just love you talked about like the balance between brain intelligence and heart intelligence. I just would love you to like weave that together for a second with this concept of the system seeing itself. Let's get real about the disparities beyond the data. Like we take that number in of like, you know, number of out of home placements among African American, Native American families. What does that really feel like and really look like? What are the stories that those numbers represent in the report that we're analyzing, right? So like getting out of our heads and into our hearts brings those stories of the families and the individuals that have lost their children into the space in the room. It brings the voice of those families and children into the process of healing and regenerating and redesigning what a system could be. Knowing what we know has been damaging and harmful and knowing that we have the responsibility to tend to the well-being of the people we're designed to serve. Like we're a part of that. Like we each have a role and responsibility in that. Whether you're the next door neighbor, the male person, grocery store attendee, whatever your role is, every single step along the way of that family's experience each single person they come into contact with has a responsibility to be aware of that. How are we contributing to the well-being of the people that we live with and among? Yeah, and how do we overcome the assumption that some people are more important than others, whether that's white and black or rich and poor or male and female or, you know, whatever the dualism is, kind of like underwire of all of our systems is that, oh, we can lose some. And so what I hear you calling to in the mirror, like showing the mirror of a system to itself is like, what would it look like 
to give place to a system where like each and every human being were held in the highest value. And I think the other piece too, is that like we can look at the data and the research and see the disparities and the impact the systems are having on people of color and indigenous people. And we can sit there and analyze it all day long. But until we go into a space of really recognizing that the patterns in the system are reflections of what we're carrying within ourselves, like what is the pattern within us that has perpetuated this into the system? How do we begin to reconcile with our own histories and our own places and our peoples? And this stuff goes deep. It's a lot of work. It's constantly growing and evolving and deepening. And the other piece too around like reconciling this within ourselves is like we have to be willing to step into that kind of like looking in the mirror ourselves. We can hold a mirror up to the system, but unless like we're willing to look in the mirror ourselves, like the system's not going to change unless we're willing to be changed as well. So what kind of practices do you use to present, like to have that mirror up in a way that you check yourself? What I think is like constantly being in learning, constantly being in awareness, constantly being in like really able to be aware of and listen to the impact like I'm having on the team. Like if I'm having a negative impact on the team and somebody's calling it out, like I'm not going to go into reaction. I'm going to really try and take it in look at it and constantly being in a learning mindset, I think helps. And then tending to yourself, this stuff isn't easy for myself. Just talking from my own experience, like I feel better after I get a walk in nature. I feel better after I take a breath and like cool down. I feel better when I get to pet my dog, see my kids. Like I feel better when I have those things that kind of like help fill me back up. And I think the other piece too is like making sure this is like a new, a recent insight I've had of like holding space for, for me in the we. And so like making sure that I'm, I'm grounded, I'm, I'm like fully present and really just meeting people where they're at and going from there and just taking it one day, one moment, one minute at a time. So knowing where you draw, knowing where uh, we personally, right, each of us individually, but draw joy and pleasure and making time for that. I think that's a big part of the regenerating so that we don't show up depleted in this like really heavy, big vision work. Thank you for that. I can always use another reminder. So as we wind down, how can people find out more about you, about your work, the Futures Institute work? Future Services Institute, which you can visit online. It's futureservicesinstitute.org. You can read more about the work that's happening there. Read about the team. They're some of the most amazing, intelligent, beautiful, wholehearted human beings I have ever had the honor and pleasure of being a part of and working with. And then on the like kind of personal healing and learning journey side of life, I encourage you to do is go to reconciliationjourney.com. There's a monthly newsletter sign up that basically is documenting the journey so far. And it's a little bit more about taking a deeper dive into this world of reconciliation and the place I come from, um, reconciling the history of my family lineage, reconciling the history of what has happened here in this place, and working alongside many, many people in community to begin to think about what would it look like if collective healing were possible. And we began to move in that direction. I encourage you to check out both those sites. Wonderful. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your book? I didn't know anything about my family history until I was having my own little breakdown moment in 2002. And this question came out of my mouth of who's the chief? And I called my dad um, because my dad, he's like a papa bear. He's, He's always been this like big burly dad. And I was like, dad, who is the chief? And he's like, 
Kate, are you okay? And I'm like, dad, I just, I need to know, like, do we have, is there something in our family history connected to, can any Native Americans here? Like what, who is the chief? And he's like, I don't know where this question's coming from, but we do have some family history connected to what happened here. And he's like, I think, you know, your great, 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 great grandfather is known as being responsible in, in killing a Native chief during the uprising. And I was like, what? It was the first time I had had any insight or knowledge or story or experience of what's in the past that's hidden, not told. And um, since 2002, it's just been a journey of kind of doing a little bit of dabbling into some research and some conversations and looking at some things and trying to put some pieces together about like not coming at reconciliation from a place of white guilt or trying to save the world and like no Christian missionary mindset in this. It's really looking at what's the reality of what it takes to begin to do really good work and reconcile your past and history in community with people that your ancestors had caused the harm to and caused the trauma to. And it's been quite a really process for like 18 years, there's a lot of really beautiful learning and stories and relationships and a lot of really crazy things that have happened along the way that I'm going to be putting into the book. And the book is about getting grounded and rooted into place. And so what does that look like? How do we reconcile our stories, both individual and collective stories? And what are some practices that help us do that? You can find out more at reconciliationjourney.com. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.